was living in London for a long time and that's where the band started. Um, but I, you know, a lot, a lot of Londoners, it just was getting more and more expensive. And, you know, during the pandemic, um, some landlords put up the, the rent as well. And it just felt a bit ridiculous to be spending lots of money in London, but not making the most of London. So I decided to move out and I moved here because um, my family are from this area as well. I've been through that in my mind a couple of times of, you know, paying New York City rents. And then uh, certainly during the pandemic, I'm realizing that I'm for a while wasn't leaving my house at all. And and now, you know, maybe maybe going two or three blocks out of the way, it doesn't make a lot of sense to be paying Mm, that much. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there are other ways to spend money. Was that sort of your major life change during the pandemic? Um, yeah, yeah, that was kind of a big one, kind of moving out and I was living with my landlord in like, kind of like a converted attic in their house. And um, so being able to kind of move out from living under the roof of someone else to kind of now having my own flat, even if it is small and a bit messy, (laughs) but you can't see too much on the Zoom, (laughs) you know, that's kind of like quite a big difference. and you know, hopefully it's kind of life shifting in the way that I I want it to shift and will continue to be this way. Due to everything that's happened and due to kind of the time that you've had to yourself and had to reflect, I think a lot of people have gone out of their way to make a life change. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, there's kind of, you know, you have to kind of sit and think if you're kind of alone with yourself for days on end as I was definitely during the pandemic. So yeah, we kind of have to consider what it is you want to do really. In terms of the bands, were any major plans derailed when the pandemic happened? Um, I think for a lot of um, bands at this time, I mean, it was hard to kind of plan release schedules and kind of figure out how to get in the studio. And, you know, we had to wait till it was a bit calmer during summer months um so we were kind of recording like summer 2020 and kind of figuring out how to kind of get in and out and what we would do oh sorry summer 2021 i think and so yeah it, it there were kind of like some logistical issues and that did kind of mean that the um actual physical release got pushed back a bit along with kind of the fact that you know, it, it takes so long to get vinyl made these days. But I think it's kind of all worked out for the be- better in the long run. It just means things took a bit longer. In what sense has it worked out better? Um, it just feels like it's a bit more spaced out and, you know, we can kind of chill out and not have to kind of make the record, release the record kind of straight in the same year. <laughs> you know, certainly for a lot of bands after the first record, it's important for them to kind of strike while the iron's hot. And when you add everything up, it's been about four years since the first one. Yeah, I mean, we didn't really, you know, the fact that we got to release the first record at all was really amazing because, you know, we recorded the records with our own money went into the studio just kind of with money that we'd saved from gigs and were kind of, you know, sending it out to different labels and seeing what they thought on our own. And, you know, we didn't have an agent or management or anything at this point. And, you know, it was only when we bumped into um, Thurston and Ava at a gig that we were playing and they kind of kindly offered to set up a label to help us release the record. Um, 
and then kind of everything kind of fell you know kept going from there um but we've always been kind of i mean we never expected any kind of overnight success <laughs> there was never any kind of push to kind of get the next record out amazingly quickly because i don't think that's not kind of the journey for for us looking back on it with you know a few years removed i mean does it feel like things happened pretty quickly once the album was out um it felt like kind of things kind of you know we kept getting you know different kind of um you know gigs and different kind of opportunities and we went from one thing to the next and kind of didn't really think we just said yes to everything really and you know we got to kind of play with gossip and you know play with bikini kill and we kind of slowly built up a team that we'd work with and have a booking agent and we only recently got management in the last year and so yeah it was just kind of very slowly just kind of being introduced to lots of very important people being like oh hi I remember listening to you when I was 10. <laughs> That's a pretty charmed story at the end of the day, bumping into Thurston Moore at a show and him agreeing to put your album out. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we have very charming stories. We're a very charming band. <laughs> That's the good thing about us. There's almost an advantage to that model early on of that first album of not really having that external or internal stressors when it comes to the bands. Not having any sort of lofty expectations means you're able to maybe have more fun doing it. Yeah. I mean, we just didn't really, we were never really, we kept, you know, because we basically came from the DIY punk scene, which, you know, is still the complete inverse of like the music industry in quotes. Um, you know, we started a band because we wanted a band like us to exist in the world. We wanted to be able to have a space where we could be as black women and to create and to kind of, even just see what that kind of creativity looks like. And so kind of our main markers of success were always very different to what the music industry would deem a marker of success. And, you know, I remember like one of my first goals was to, you know, release an EP on the local DIY label Tough Enough and, and we did that kind of like within six months. And that was our first EP, Sister Punk EP. And then after that, we just slowly had our own small goals. But it was never kind of the industry level of make sure we get in the room with this person and make sure we get to South by Southwest by this year and, you know, doing things in that very standardized way because I don't think the standard really works out if you're, um, already kind of booking against the norm. It is an interesting thing about punk in that obviously I'm sort of coming at this from a fairly, from a very privileged position, but it's always seemed to be at least theoretically inclusive. But, you know, at the end of the day, traditionally you haven't seen the sort of representation that a lot of these bands are theoretically striving for. Um, yeah, I mean, yes and no. I think. On the surface, it's it can seem like you know there's a, a a certain amount of homogeneity in in the punk scene, um, and who's kind of elevated to the top and who um, is forgotten about. Um, but then also, kind of if you kind of look a bit deeper under mm-hmm. under the layers, you know, look at who's kind of buying the records, who's making the zines who's sometimes in the audience or who's been influential to those bands 
or even kind of going back deeper and you know who's the bass player who's playing the keyboards um who who was actually in that scene and there are a lot of have been always a lot of um people of color in those punk scenes and i think kind of you know the band that we started and different things that we do are all about kind of recognizing that history and recognizing that it's not like we're kind of you know reinventing the wheel we're not doing anything completely out of the norm this is completely makes sense in terms of how people of color create and how we, we rebel and how we're quite adapted to being DIY and being punk. Maybe there's a sense in which that's, that's an even larger problem. The fact that, you know, as, as you say, there is representation in, in the audience and some of the musicians, but again, when we, when we sort of like point to traditional people who have been elevated, there's a handful of examples. I think everybody goes back to polystyrene, but maybe that's an even larger problem that there is representation, but that, that there's sort of a, a, a ceiling for that in terms of promotion and in terms of your ability to really sort of rise the ranks. Yeah, I think that could definitely be true. Um, I think sometimes there's a, a level of, you know, fitting into a stereotype that scenes or even the music industry can only kind of envision if you're a black person in that space. And, you know, you know, the idea is that if you're in a black punk band, then you'll want to talk about being black and making punk and, you know, do it in th- ways that are very obvious and very kind of rudimentary. Which, to be fair, are not are not subjects that you shy away from. They're not subjects that we shy away from, but they're not done in kind of rudimentary ways that are necessarily kind of like out there just for a white audience to um, pick up on. It's more that, you know, we are, that, you know, we are black, so sometimes those life experiences will kind of make their way into our songs. But um, being able to kind of put everything out there and kind of display all different types of your personality and all different types of your experiences that aren't necessarily in keeping with how um, society views black women or black people. Um, So sometimes we you know, it won't necessarily be what, what's expected of, of us, basically. Do you feel that the punk scene in particular is similar to that when it comes to uh, queer representation? Um, I don't know. I, I don't think I'm the best judge. I think um, there are a lot of other people that could answer that a lot, a lot more succinctly and have a lot more experience. Um, I think the punk scene's definitely over the years has always made a lot of attempts to in- be as inclusive as possible. And queer representation is generally kind of really important to most promoters, most audience members, most of the punks that I've met, uh, you know, in my experience in the punk scene. But it, it does seem, seem like something, and correct me if I'm wrong, though, that is that is also kind of central to what you're doing and how you're putting yourselves out there. I'm, you released a very sweet video for a very sweet song, and it was a queer relationship. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that was kind of, you know, our idea of, you know, it doesn't have to be a heteronormative <laughs> relationship and in, in those kind of like videos and, you know, we thought it'd be quite sweet to kind of look back on kind of, you know, a youth that could represent our youth or represent kind of 
the kind of Gen Z youth as well. So yeah, I think that was kind of like a really cute video and we've had like a lot of kind of good responses to it of people kind of seeing themselves in it and seeing that representation. Um, but yeah, it's been nice to kind of kind of promote that idea and kind of get out there that, you know, not just queer representation, but kind of black and queer representation and representation for queer people of colour. Um, and I hope we can do that kind of through the band, definitely. One of the things I, I really appreciate about that, the video specifically, is it's just, it's unapologetically sweet. It's just, you know, it's just nice. It's it's non-ironically and it's earnestly just sort of a nice video, which is something I, I, I feel like I don't see a lot of these days. <laughs> Yeah, I guess not. <laughs> there are not a lot of earnest punk bands. I don't know if we're we're an earnest band, but then I guess it's an earnest subject. It's kind of the lyrics are very, um, you know. It, I I feel like I wrote them very very quickly in like five minutes, and so I I didn't really like all of them because they were all a bit. Some of them were a bit too obvious at first. I thought, um, but maybe that is kind of like what is needed to say what you need to say I think and sometimes you do have to be a bit obvious or a bit earnest and just say this is this is how it is I you know I, I love you or I miss you and kind of lay it out in that very particular way maybe there's a sense in which being too obvious could be a revolutionary act yeah <laughs> yeah I guess so. I mean I guess people don't really express how they feel generally so if you're kind of obvious in how you feel that could that could change the world <laughs> This is such a hokey question, but but I have to ask is specifically, what does it mean to be punk in 2022? What does it mean to be punk? I mean, it's interesting because I guess I think a lot of people will will refer to us as a lot of things, but not necessarily punk straight away and kind of tag us in, kind of notice kind of our other influences and that we're influenced by post-punk or indie or a lot of other things except for punk. But I always cling on to the idea of punk as as in what we are because I think that there is a, an element of rebellion and self-determination in punk that I think is intrinsic to what Big Joni is as a band and what we'll, I hope will always be. And so to me, punk is about creating your own rules and not fitting in to what society tells you and, you know, I still feel like you know, that kind of teenage girl that found Riot Girl and was like overwhelmed by the idea that you could create and not consume culture. And that that's still kind of really important to me. So yeah, I think that's why, that's why how I still view punk today. Where were you at in your life when you discovered that there was this whole different world of, of music and culture? Yeah, I think that I was, you know, about I was a teenager, I was about 15 or 16, and growing up in Wolverhampton in the West Midlands in the UK, and which is quite like a, a it, it's basically a small town. It's, they call it a city now, but it's, it's technically a town. So, yeah, it was quite, quite like a small area, and, you know, I, music was something that I, did kind of as my own hobby and was kind of something that was quite central to me on my own individually um, in a weird way instead of kind of with shared with a lot of people and I remember kind of you know 
looking on Kill Rockstar's website um, and going through all of their kind of free MP3s um, and going through them and kind of like finding the gossip and Bikini Kill and um, Bratmobile and all these different 90s bands. And that was kind of what opened my eyes to different ways of creating music, but also different ways of kind of being involved and having a community, even if there wasn't anyone specifically around me at that time. Um, but yeah, I think, I mean, it's it's clearly still revolution, you know, young girls and young boys and everyone in between, even today, like that whole idea of seeing culture and punk and creating what you want to see in the world is like really impactful because it's not something that you're really told. I love how specifically talking about free MP3s on a website really like puts it, it puts it in such a specific time period. Yeah, you can tell it was early, (laughs) the early noughties. It was when, yeah, when you had like those free samplers, but it wasn't on the CD, it was on the website. Yeah, it was a very specific period. It was a good period though, because, you know, it wasn't like Spotify where there was like 20 billion things. It was like curated and it came with all the information that I needed as a teenager to like find out about the different bands and the bands those bands were connected to and the scenes those bands were connected to. And that's how I found about Sonic Youth and Nirvana um, and everything really kind of, you know, that I listen to today. Well, obviously, streaming is a double-edged sword for a lot of reasons, but specifically when it comes to discovery, I think the upside of it is that, especially kids, younger kids, Gen Z, as you said, like they don't have those artificial boundaries between genres because that's partially because of the way that music served up. But this is makes me, this is like makes me sound like such an old man. But also, there's there's a certain pleasure in feeling like you kind of had to work to find something yeah totally like you it was your it was your thing it wasn't anyone else's um and you could kind of even if you didn't discover like I I generally as a teenager thought I discovered the white stripes I did not (laughs) I absolutely did not but in my head because I was delusional and a teenager and you know you kind of I went about my own way and kind of found the album and found the their you know their like I think mp3s from their first record and did my own research then they were technically my band and I discovered them um and it's so important because you remember those kind of moments you remember kind of the first time you kind of found an article about them or the first pictures that you saw um and how you felt when you kind of first heard the rec the you know the song that would stay with you um it's really important and i think that kind of that discovery is i don't know well i don't know if it's lost it but it's i hope people still have it today yeah the, the white stripes are such a funny one because seven nation army is played in like every sports stadium throughout yeah. the world yeah they broke through in a way it seems like rock bands in particular don't really break through anymore no, I, d- I don't know how that... Well, I know how it happened because it's just a good song. It's, it's like a good even, riff is what it is. It's a good riff, yeah. It's catchy. You can play it on like one string. You know, you don't have to like be sober to remember it, which is why it's in the football stadiums. It's, yeah, it's like a little folk song, but with distorted guitars. 
but yeah, I think, you know, they were, they were really important to me at that time. And it was just like a, I don't know. It's, they're, they're kind of an unusual band, but the right band for the right moment. Do you avoid sort of like nerding out too much? And when you meet somebody like Jack White for the first time? To be honest, ever since we like got bumped into Thurston, there's just not been any time because you just don't have the space or head into, you know, you're just pushed into a room and like, oh, my favorite band in the world is Slater Kinney. They were the band that I learned to play guitar to along with Bikini Kill. Um, and I listened to their songs every day practically. But we had to support them um, two years ago at Brixton Academy. Had to. We had to. We, 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 we were to forced support. by gunpoint to support Slater Kitty. We were forced to support it. So, yeah, we just, you know, there wasn't any time for fangirling because there was, like, work to do, and they were just walking through the halls and said hi. And so you just have to kind of get on with it and just, you know, I think I did a brief like accidental, oh, you don't know how much this means to me, but then I just walked away <laughs> and, so, you know, didn't want to bother with them. But yeah, there's just, there's just so much to do. You've just got to kind of say, hi, I'm really looking forward to meet you. Um, let's get on with this and kind of move on to the next stage. <laughs> I don't know if they want fangirling. I don't know. That would be a bit strange. I had Janet on a couple months ago and for me it's interviewing you know for you it's it's playing with them but at a certain point you learn the very obvious fact that they're they're just people who just yeah. happen to do that for a living yeah which is weird because you know you ne- would never i don't know why but you'd never assume they were just people they always seem kind of more grander than just people you know especially kind of you know they're just so talented as individuals and such a talented force and they come together, you know, especially Slater Kinney that it, yeah, it, yeah, it's just weird to just see them as normal people. <laughs> Have you been on the other side of that? I mean, I assume that after the first record really got some traction that people came up to you and, and expressed how much it meant to them. Um, I don't know if people express, I mean, I've recently people have come up and recognized me I don't know where from, maybe because my glasses and they've got very big glasses or something. I don't know. Um, and yeah, I, yeah, generally I get, oh, are you Steph from Big Joni? And I say yes. And then I never really know what to say after that. <laughs> but just the, you know, hi, and I just try to be polite. You know, there's no reason to be rude. And I don't think I've ever had anyone be rude to me. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know what I'd do if someone said that they I, I meant as much to them as, you know, you know, Slater Kinney means to me. You have one and about to be two albums out and, and that's probably part of it. But how do you feel like you would, you know, you, you would handle that? I mean, is that something, I mean, obviously it's flattering, but it, it's also sort of a strange thing to hear from someone. Yeah, I think, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess for me, I, I, I grew up being such a music nerd that, I think it would be it would be very flattering. I guess it would be a bit awkward, but then technically, I think it's all part of the kind of musical continuum of that. You know, one person gets inspired by another person, and then you pass it on to someone else. It's just this continuous conversation going through time. I would just be one part of that link, and then 
hopefully 10 years down the line that you know that person that said it to me can ha- well ha- have the experience the same as I did or experience the same as Slater Kinney or Bikini Kill and everyone else so I guess in the yeah in the grander scheme of things it it wouldn't mean it's not a big deal it's just part of the whole reason that music exists yeah i mean for me it's something that i've been trying to get better at in life is just being able to take a compliment from people yeah that's true <laughs> yeah and understanding like you know especially if it is like a, a 12 or 13 year old that you do have to kind of live up to that moment you know that w- when they are that excited to meet you yeah yeah that's true yeah i'm kind of you know tell them to stay in school i got the feeling reading an interview that you did you had mentioned your your father's reggae records did you grow up in a musical house not really actually um i mean my dad um you know my parents are both from jamaica and they grew up in england um and lived in wolverhampton their whole lives after that um so yeah my dad they're very typical of their generation my dad likes reggae and you know uh you know a bit of scar and that kind of thing my mom likes a lot of Motown and the kind of early, you know, I don't know if you know about the Lovers Rock genre that was in England in the 70s. Uh, yeah, that kind of music and, you know, maybe a bit of pop, but yeah, a lot of soul and that kind of thing. So I, I listened to kind of vicariously through them of their, those records, I guess. Um, and my dad used to sing in choir when he was a kid. But beyond that, it wasn't a, a particularly musical household. The only other thing was my brother technically has perfect pitch, but he's never used it for anything good. <laughs> he's used it for evil. He's just not used it. <laughs> I don't have it. So. If they're old enough, like that was an amazing sweet spot in terms of Jamaican music influencing a lot of the a lot of the English music that was happening at the time. You know, there was that sort of the two tone movement. There was a lot of Northern soul. It was kind of, I mean, it's a it was a pretty incredible time for music. Yeah, I mean, from what from what I gathered and from what you know, I could tell when they came over, that would have been kind of like the first. I think I think it's described as like the first generation of like Black British music. So it wasn't kind of like music was coming from the Caribbean or from Africa, it was like music was made by the black people that would have been mostly kind of born there or that was the land was all that all they knew. So, you know, it was kind of a British experience, but vicariously through these other elements. So is, you know, I mean, the one thing about kind of the culture in Britain and, you know, it's very racist. <laughs> it doesn't really accept the the other um people that have made a home here and what we've done here but nevertheless like you know we keep making amazing things and kind of the immigrant culture keeps building and building and building on all these different things that we've done before so you know even today that's you know all those immigrants have never really stopped and they're still kind of creating different musical genres and different creating art and creating all these different things um, for people to enjoy. So, yeah. Unfortunately, I think that that's a pretty universal thing in terms of, 
I mean, like racism generally, but specifically in terms of immigration, pretty much across the board. It really just comes down to like, who who are the people that are being discriminated against? Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> as we kind of alluded to at the top, you're, you're also a writer as well. You had a book come out, I think maybe roughly this time last year. What do your parents think about the music side of your career and the music making side of your career? The music making? Um I think for a long time, they just thought it was a bit silly at best. <laughs> you know, it's not, I mean, it's not technically a real job. So they are fair to think that. But, you know, I think it's it's hard to for parents to kind of grasp the things that you're doing and why you're, why you're doing it. I think now they're very, I think they're proud and I think they're happy to kind of see the band doing well. Um, my mom likes that the band's named after her, <laughs> and and yeah, they've you know are kind of looking out for us, you know, to see if we're on the radio or on TV and stuff like that. So yeah, I think they're they're kind of enjoying it and kind of slowly kind of understanding more what we're doing. You described your mother in an interview as being quietly revolutionary. What what does that mean? I think that means that. Um, I mean, I wouldn't describe her as, uh, you know, she never took me on any marches or has never comp- campaigned for um, any particular party. But I think she's always instilled in me and my brother a kind of sense of not just right and wrong, but kind of what's morally right um, and to stick to that no matter what or how, you know, that goes goes against that. So I think that I've learned a lot from her in terms of kind of, um, yeah, my views on the world. I've learned a lot from her politically. Um, I've learned a lot about kind of ways to deal with kind of um, discrimination and deal with kind of different hurdles that are thrown your way. Um, And I think just kind of generally for black women of her generation you know they had to be quietly revolutionary in terms of kind of quietly strong because you couldn't necessarily come out and be loud about it it had to be quite um it, you know you had to be almost underhand and kind of do that behind closed doors but i think that she's someone that's always been kind of fighting for what's right the way you described the subject matter the, the, the way the way that being black kind of informs your music i i almost took it to be that it's it's this lens right that you can't avoid that you know obviously through living your life so clearly that's going to impact the music you make do do you feel that politics plays a similar role i mean yeah i think that the reality of the world plays a similar role i think that you know it's we live in a very kind of pressured time and even kind of time is precious to be able to kind of get the time to write a song. (laughs) So I feel like that anxiety and that kind of worry definitely feeds its way into songs because that's always kind of there. I think that I've definitely been kind of, that's definitely there in, in, you know, this next record coming up, I think I was worried about, you know, it was post-Brexit and that kind of 
anxiety still hangs over the country and kind of still is very much kind of pushed the anger from it is very much being pushed towards uh, immigrant communities and people of color in the UK and yeah i think just dealing with the kind of reality of life will will definitely Im- you know impacts songs i never really set out to write about one thing or or another but obviously it will work out if it if it needs to work out there are these conversations that the band has internally as far as i guess how heavy to lean into over politics no i don't think we've ever had a a conversation about any any lyric that we've we've written with that's in any of the songs i mean we're quite political as individuals and we're more all on the same wavelength really so there's it's very unlikely that i never we'd ever have something that we don't all agree with um and generally i think a lot of our songs are up for um interpretation anyway so it's could be you know could be whatever you want it to be <laughs> this is kind of a balancing act that a lot of political musicians have is is how 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 sort of specific and and how open and how earnest to be about mm-hmm. politics yeah i mean i never really want to be i never really want to kind of be too earnest or be too obvious i think it's got to be artistic still mm-hmm. and i think that it's you know as much as a, a particular statement may need to be said it still needs to be said in a way that is um artistic and kind of relevant to the moment i don't know how much you're thinking specifically of the audience but and to a wider audience i mean obviously mentioning brexit specifically Mm. maybe doesn't have the same kind of impact outside of the uk i guess so yeah um to be I, i guess i don't think about anyone listening to it technically when i'm writing it <laughs> that's not, that's a totally that's a totally fair point of view i mean and, and it's and there's a sense in which what you make ends up being pure if you're not too bogged down with what other people think yeah i think it'd be quite hard to consider the kind of the the audience in that way and i mean i don't know i think i kind of like the idea of being a little bit selfish in that way and and kind of like I always loved, um, I think it's like PJ Harvey's, you know, she always says she writes for herself mainly um, because I, I don't know, I think you're your, your best judge of character and best audience. And also I just write songs because it's a hobby and I like, I like hearing songs. <laughs> you said before that, that it's not really a real job and that jumped out at me because I, I think I, I might have, and this is hundred percent my bad, but I, I might have suggested to somebody that, that, at that being in a band and, and the, at the level that they were at wasn't a real job. And I understand why that was, that was taken offensively. When, when you say it's not a real job, you mean specifically that it's not the thing paying the bills? I mean, for one, it's not the thing paying the bills. <laughs> it's definitely not paying the bills at the moment. Who knows? Maybe it will in the future. But also, I, I mean, it, it, I think it's not a real job in terms of, I guess it's not seen as a real job. But then also, I mean, we are we are working quite hard and we are, you know, generally constantly touring and playing shows on the weekend when we can. 
um, and kind of working around, whether it's doing press or recording or, you know, doing rehearsals. So, you know, in terms of time spent on it, I mean, it's more than a full-time job. But in terms of kind of whether anyone will view it as valid, technically it's, I don't know if a musician will ever be viewed as fully valid unless you're at kind of, you know, Ed Sheeran level. And I don't really want to invest in a loop pedal. I would certainly never suggest that you were less valid than Ed Sheeran, just just for the record. Okay, thank you. You have this writing career. We mentioned the book early on, the Solange book that you did. Is is the hope that music becomes your full-time gig? Not necessarily. I think that, um, I don't know, I just worry that you'd have to kind of sell your soul to be full-time as a musician these days. I don't really, I just feel too old to be able to have to kind of fit into any particular box. I like that we can do whatever we want to do and don't have to feel obligated or feel like we owe someone something. So, I mean, I, I want Big Journey to grow in any way that it needs to grow and I'm happy to kind of take that journey and go, you know, go down the path that we need to go down. But also I don't really expect it to be the full-time gig and I'm very happy to kind of keep writing and, you know, the best kind of outcome could be, you know, I spend 50 percent of my time kind of writing books and articles, and the rest of my time working on Big Journey and writing songs. I'm very curious, specifically with the Solange book, how, if at all, that informs the music that you make. I think, I mean, that's the interesting thing about songwriting and writing, and I don't know. To me, I feel like they're very, very different ways of of creating and getting you know getting that out of there um to me I mean writing the book was so hard it's like the hardest thing I've ever done and you know getting words on the page that made sense was you know very literally like pulling blood from a stone whereas I think songwriting works best when it 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 just happens and you just keep playing different notes and then figure out the right rhythm and you know you let words fall out of your mouth and they'll find the right pattern that they need to find so they're generally to me they're generally from two different sides of my brain I think that I was definitely you know inspired by Solange's approach to being a creative in terms of her idea of kind of seeing herself as like this all-rounder artist that's not kind of shut off to anyone um, path um i i think that's really interesting and really kind of important that she did that i don't know if i'm very good enough at that many things to kind of call myself <laughs> that as well <laughs> and i get the sense that it's that she's really fought for that recognition yeah definitely i think you know kind of looking at her journey has been like a very long time coming and you know she started in the industry when she was a teenager and has always been working to, you know, make sure people respect her for her songwriting, for her producing, for, you know, all these different aspects of her. And it, it did take a long time. There's a sense in which it's got to be difficult when your sister is the biggest pop star in the world to, to oh, break yeah. out of that shadow. Yeah. And how do you break out that shadow? You can't really do the same as she did because then you're copying and 
you can't do you know the direct opposite because then you're just rebelling so you know looking at that journey that she took it is about her kind of figuring out how to be herself both within and outside of that kind of Knowles industrial complex. 